Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From Bonnie, London Town, this is Obscure Season 4 in American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, returning with another chapter or so, maybe just a few pages, we don't know, of this fine American work. We're getting into it now, uh, just as I am getting into London town. Man, oh man, uh, the, the weather here has just been great. It's July, it's cloudy, it's cool, I'm wearing a hoodie, I love it. I loves it. Martha's going nuts with the weather. I couldn't be happier with these cool temps, especially when you see there's heat domes all over the all over the globe. There's there's a flooding and and people sweltering and all kinds of misery everywhere. But here in London, man, you can wear long pants, get a cool breeze in your hair. No no air conditioning to speak of. When we first got here, it was a little it was a little warm, and uh, I remember climbing the steps and struggling with our luggage to ascend to our second floor flat. They call it the first floor here because they don't know how to count. And uh, just sweating and and feeling stuffy and annoyed at how small the place was and resentful that there wasn't even a fan in the flat. We had to crack open the window, not crack, we had to jam open the windows and then flies started coming in and I was perspiring and moist. And I thought, how can these people live like this? Well, it turns out they live like this because those warm nights are far and few between. You don't need the air conditioning. Most of the time, it's, it's what I'm experiencing as I sit here right now in my blue hoodie, my soft blue snuggy hoodie. Martha's like, where, 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 where's the summer? Where's the summer? I'm like, you're going to go back to Savannah in September and have a summer. For the next three months, September, October, maybe into November, it'll feel very summery for you. 
Let's just enjoy the Arctic London temps, shall we? It's great. It is another Sunday. I recorded a week ago. Uh, Martha was having a, a roast. This weekend, a different friend invited us to for dinner, and once again, I declined. Now, and Martha got mad at me. She said, "You, you, why don't you want to come and hang out with my friend?" And and uh, I had to give her the same explanation that I gave her last week because I want to be alone. Like tomorrow, we're going uh, to the Cotswolds. I don't really exactly know what the Cotswolds means. I know it's just a, an area that you go to where it's supposed to be countrified and, and charming and all that bullshit. And we'll probably go to pubs and eat shepherd's pie. And I don't know what we're going to do when we're there. Tromp around, maybe walk the moors. I don't know what we're going to do. But I'm like, you know, we're going to be together every second of the day for the next three days. Can't I just have an afternoon to myself? She wasn't happy with that, but she understood. It's not, you know, like I, it's not that I'm antisocial exactly, but for the fact that I am exactly antisocial. And I like this friend, Fina. I like, you know, I like people. Just don't need to be with them ever. So it's now evening time here. Uh, Wimbledon has just concluded. She went up there to, her friend actually lives in Wimbledon. So she went to Wimbledon to hang out and sort of watch the end of the match. I'm guessing at a pub or something. And then they were going to go back to her friend's place and have some dinner, and apparently your friend's a terrific cook, and I do like good food, but I just, I don't know, I just wanted to be alone, you know, and I like her friend, and I like her friend's husband, and just wanted to be alone, I feel guilty about it, but, but god damn it, can't a man just decline an invitation without feeling, uh, 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 racked with guilt, and Martha is certainly not immune from making me feel guilty. She's she's happy to do it when it serves her purposes. But I stood firm, said, no, thank you. I'll see you later. And so now I'm cooking a couple of chicken breasts, dry, dry chicken breasts in my oven, heating up some leftover veg. That's how they say it here in London town. They talk about veg. I don't like the way they shorten things like that. They infantilize, infantilize, infantilize the language. Like instead of appetizers, they say nibblers or nibbles, and then they shorten that to nibs. I don't like that. Or they, they have like uh, snack foods called like jammy dandies and just everything just sounds like you're trying to feed a six-year-old. I don't care for that at all. Veg. Don't give me that. Don't call it pudding. You can't have your pudding if you don't eat your meat. Well, the fact of the matter is we have no pudding here in the house right now. But I am having my meat and I am heating up some veg. You might even hear the oven as I open it up because I'm going to put the veg in now to heat up with the chicken. You can hear that. And uh, there we go. A lot of striving in London. It is a town of strivers. And that is what brings people to this place, no doubt, serving the same function as New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco in the United States of America. It is where you go to strive. It is where you go to seek your fortune as a Brit or, you know, any number of nationalities. People come here to make something out of themselves. And, uh, you know, it, it, it creates a, a certain environment and vibe and atmosphere which some people probably find very appealing. I would have found it appealing myself in my younger years, but I am no longer striving nearly so much. And um, 
you know, the buzziness of it doesn't hold quite the same appeal as it might have for me when I was, uh, when I, when I wore a younger man's clothes. So I like it, but, um, you know, the vibe of it definitely is similar to what our, uh, well, we don't know if he's the protagonist yet, although it seems like that's where it's headed. Our protagonist, Clyde Griffiths, seems like his kind of scene, you know, the, the, the sort of thing he wants to do as he contemplates his future there from the exurbs of Kansas City. Not that he, I mean, he's in Kansas City proper, but when compared to, you know, let's say the, the heartbeat of America, the Chicago's, the New York cities of the 1920s, he's out there in the boonies, you know, out there in the exurbs. But he's got a notion that a rich uncle out there in some fictional upstate New York town, a factory owner, a purveyor of shirt collars and shirts, an employer of 300 souls, a man he has never met yet is tied to by blood, may at some point give him an opportunity. And that's all young Clyde needs. He has no proper schooling. He has no training in anything other than warbling on street corners. But if somebody would just give him a chance, by God, he thinks he could make something of himself. It is that classic American tale. Not quite Horatio Alger, but not so dissimilar either. So when we talk about an American tragedy, and we haven't quite reached the tragic part yet and probably won't for some time, but when we talk about the American character, this is so much of what we're talking about. It shares so much with what's going on in London. It is that sense of making something out of one's self by hook or by crook. Hopefully not by crook. I have become dismayed in recent years by the amount of crookery in this nation. And I'm hoping that Clyde does not succumb to such nonsense. Well, we ended last time with the uh, conclusion of chapter two, so I'm thrilled to report that we will be starting this time with the beginning of chapter three. So let us proceed. Chapter three in American Tragedy. One of the things that served to darken Clyde's mood just about the time when he was seeking some practical solution for himself, to say nothing of its profoundly disheartening effect on the Griffiths family as a whole, was the fact that his sister Esther, in whom he took no little interest, although they really had very little in common, ran away from home with an actor who happened to be playing in Kansas City and who took a passing fancy to her. My God, we're, we're, we're hardly into the book and we've already had a dramatic turn. Esther, you remember the stalwart, although uh, 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 unspectacular, older sister who had a kind of reedy voice. She played the organ. She was falling into a life of devotion. She meets an actor in Kansas City and runs away with him. No doubt somebody who looks like John Hamm or Paul Rudd, both of whom also hail from that no-good town. 
It's the kind of thing that can happen when you go to Kansas City. The truth in regard to Esther was that in spite of her guarded upbringing and the seeming religious and moral fervor which at times appeared to characterize her, she was just a sensuous, weak girl who did not by any means know yet what she thought. Despite the atmosphere in which she moved, essentially she was not of it. Like the large majority of those who profess and daily repeat the dogmas and creeds of the world, she had come into her practices and imagined attitude so insensibly from her earliest childhood on that up to this time and even later, she did not know the meaning of it all. Remember in the first episode, we talked about how uh, Hester... which is an unusual name, you know, shares uh, a name with that uh, heroine of American literature, Hester Prynne, she of the Scarlet A. I said, we're going to keep an eye on that. And what do you know? Not, not even three chapters in. Well, just, just at three chapters in, we've got Hester running off, slutting herself up with some Fancy talking Kansas City actor. Wow. I'm shocked. Can you hear the sizzle? I just took the chicken out. Mm-mm-mm. My dry chicken breasts. Yum, yum, yummy, yum. No Sunday roast here. Nothing of the sort. I'll let that cool off a little as I, uh, as I continue to read. For the necessity of thought had been obviated by advice and law or revealed truth. And so long as other theories or situations and impulses of an external or even internal character did not arise to clash with these, she was safe enough. Once they did, however, it was a foregone conclusion that her religious notions, not being grounded on any conviction or temperamental bias of her own, were not likely to withstand the shock. How many, I mean, we talk, I talk about uh, T. Dreiser being a perceptive writer, and in fact, he is revealing himself to be more and more of the kind. How many people do we know just like this who, who get up, do their daily ablutions, is that the word? Um, but really, there's nothing behind it other than ritual for ritual's sake. They haven't really contemplated exactly what they're doing or why they're doing it. And so when something comes to confront it, something with maybe a little bit more appeal, something that shows a little bit more leg, what do they do? They give it all up because they find the ritual doesn't sustain them. It's merely habitual. So that all the while... And not unlike her brother Clyde, her thoughts as well as her emotions were wandering here and there to love, to comfort, to things which in the main had little, if anything, to do with any self-abnegating and self-immolating religious theory. Within her was a chemism, chemism, C-H-E-M-I-S, 
M. It looks like chasm, right? But chemism. Let's look that up. Let's crank up the old research machine for the first time this episode. Let's see if we can't find ourselves a definition of chemism and a pronunciation, hopefully. Ah, interesting. It's a term in Hegelian philosophy that stands for the mutual attraction, interpenetration, and neutralization of independent individuals. What the hell? It's, it's, it, the forces of attraction or adhesion between two entities. It seems like even in Dreiser's day, maybe this wasn't a common word. Within her was a chemism of dreams which somehow counteracted all they had to say. So yes, yeah, so these, these little free-floating molecules of thoughts and ambitions and fantasies coalescing together and then once confronted with uh, the possibility to make those dreams a reality, boy, she takes them with an actor, no less, the lowest of life forms. Yet she had neither Clyde's force nor, on the other hand, his resistance. She was, in the main, a drifter, with a vague yearning toward pretty dresses, hats, shoes, ribbons, and the like and superimposed above this the religious theory or notion that she should not be. There were the long, bright streets of a morning and afternoon after school or of an evening, the charm of certain girls swinging along together, arms locked, secrets a-whispering, or that of boys, clownish, yet revealing through their bounding, ridiculous animality the force and meaning of that chemistry and urge toward mating, which lies back of all youthful thought and action. And in herself, as from time to time, she observed lovers or flirtation seekers who lingered at street corners or about doorways and who looked at her in a longing and seeking way. There was a stirring a nerve plasm palpitation that spoke loudly for all the seemingly material things of life, not for the thin pleasantries of heaven. Yeah, I mean, that kind of strikes home for a lot of us, doesn't it? Brings to mind sort of these youthful stirrings, I guess, is probably the best word. That, that vague sense of titillation and escapism, adventure, that, that, that notion that there is something out there that you could grasp if only you extend your reach far enough. But of course, we know what happens to those whose grasp exceeds their reach. And I suspect such a thing will happen to Hester or Esther. She will be one of those, you know, tragic stories. As she goes through life, she's you know she's like a uh, she's like one of those groupies and almost famous, just trying to find something. So she latches on to the first boy who gives her uh, gives her the right look, says the, the 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 right words, offers his arm, and says, "Come with me." Well, why wouldn't she? Why wouldn't she turn her back on the thin pleasantries of heaven? What does heaven offer for a girl like that? No hats, shoes, or ribbons in heaven. 
And the glances drilled her like an invisible ray, for she was pleasing to look at and was growing more attractive hourly. Now, that's not what he said at the beginning of the book, but I guess, you know, time is a little bit fluid here, and so her structure may have improved. And the moods in others awakened responsive moods in her, those rearranging chemisms upon which all the morality or immorality of the world is based. And then one day, as she was coming home from school, a youth of that plausible variety known as Masher engaged her in conversation, largely because of a look and a mood which seemed to invite it. And there was little to stay her, for she was essentially yielding, if not amorous. Yet so great had been her home drilling as to the need of modesty, circumspection, purity, and the like, that on this occasion at least there was no danger of any immediate lapse. Only this attack once made, others followed, were accepted, were not so quickly fled from, and by degrees, those served to break down that wall of reserve which her home training had served to erect. She became secretive and hid her ways from her parents. Well, let's take a, let's take a breather there. You know, my dinner is now ready. I'm going to eat my supper. Let's contemplate um, all the ways that girls have fallen from grace. All those mashers hanging out on street corners, all those wolf whistles, all those cat calls. And some girls find themselves vulnerable to such attention. And, uh, oh, we know what happens after that. They end up dead in gutters. Dead in gutters, I tell you. Drunk on Coca-Cola, opium in their nostrils. That's what I predict for young Hester Griffiths. But we'll find out over the course of this book. But let's take a little break back in a moment here on Obscure. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Back on Obscure, the dry chicken breast, now consumed, now gurgitating. <clears throat> you can probably hear the raspiness in my throat because, you know, when you eat a dry chicken breast, even if you down a, 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 a glass of tap water like I just did, you're still going to have a little bit of residual dryness in the throat. But we were contemplating our fallen angel, Hester known as Esther running off with some louch, some masher, some no-good-nick, John Ham type, sweeping her off her feet right there in Kansas City. And uh, let's see what happens to her. Youths occasionally walked and talked with her 
in spite of herself. They demolished that excessive shyness which had been hers, and which had served to put others aside for a time at least. She wished for other contacts, dreamed of some bright, gay, wonderful love of some kind with someone. Finally, after a slow but vigorous internal growth of mood and desire, there came this actor, one of those vain, handsome, animal personalities, all clothes and airs, but no morals, no taste, no courtesy or real tenderness even, but of compelling magnetism, who was able within the space of one brief week and a few meetings to completely befuddle and enmesh her, enmesh her, so that she was really his to do with as he wished. And the truth was that he scarcely cared for her at all. To him, dull as he was, she was just another girl, fairly pretty, obviously sensuous and inexperienced, a silly who could be taken by a few soft words, a show of seemingly sincere affection, talk of the opportunity of a broader, freer life on the road, in other cities, as his wife. Ah, ah, the heart breaks, does it not? You know, here I am trying to muster sympathy for the thespians on strike out there in Hollywood, and then along comes this douchebag, this John Hamm type, seducing an innocent as his plaything to do with as he wants. It's, it's, uh, it's abhorrent is what it is. I don't care for it at all, and I don't care for the impression that he gives on you impressionable listeners on the character of the actor, who, in my experience, is a fine, upstanding citizen of this union. Never mind the one that killed Lincoln, the rest of us, and never mind this guy, and never mind Kevin Spacey, the rest of us, terrific people. And yet his words were those of a lover who would be true forever. All she had to do, as he explained to her, was to come away with him and be his bride at once. Now, delay was so vain when two such as they had met. There was difficulty about marriage here, which he could not explain. It related to friends. But in St. Louis, he had a preacher friend who would wed them. She was to have new and better clothes than she had ever known, delicious adventures, love. She would travel with him and see the great world. She would never need to trouble more about anything save him. And while it was truth to her, the verbal surety of a genuine passion, to him it was the most ancient and serviceable type of blarney, often used before and often successful. In a single week then, at odd hours, morning, afternoon, and night, this chemic witchery was accomplished. Oh, my, I mean, my heart is breaking. I'm not even, I'm only being, uh, let's say, 50% uh, insincere. 50% of me is sincerely kind of heartbroken for this girl, which is a lot for me and for a, for a, a girl I've just barely met and who doesn't even exist. 50% of me is truly heartbroken for her. And it's, and it's you know, it's because, uh, I, you know, it, this, this me too motherfucker, you know? 
It's just squeezing around like a like a wet sponge. I don't care for it at all. It's breaking my heart. I'll tell you something else. Maybe I'm just getting soft and sensitive. I don't know, but I've been watching Homeland for the last few weeks. Just kind of ripping through Homeland. I'd never seen it before. And uh, the character of Carrie Matheson, one of the great characters in television history, truly, because she's um, she's so complex and good for, good on Claire Danes for playing the part. But in season four, I'm on season four now. I don't know how many seasons there are, either six or eight, I think. But season four takes a turn for Carrie where she becomes a monster. She's just a monster in this season. I mean, she's been through a lot in the first three seasons, but by season four, she's just become consumed. The job is consuming her. And uh, to the point where it's hard for me to actually watch the episodes because of things she does. I, you know, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to spoil anything, but certain things she does, it just, it just, it, it, I don't know, it just makes me upset. And it's all just, uh, you know, it's play acting, but I don't, I don't like it. It's how I'm feeling about Hester Griffiths here. In this case, it's things being done to her, but I don't care for it. Coming home rather late one Saturday night in April from a walk, which he had taken about the business heart in order to escape the regular Saturday night mission services, Clyde found his mother and father worried about the whereabouts of Esther. She had played and sung as usual at this meeting, and all had seemed all right with her. After the meeting, she had gone to her room, saying that she was not feeling very well and was going to bed early. But by 11 o'clock, when Clyde returned, her mother had chanced to look into her room and discovered that she was not there, nor anywhere about the place. A certain bareness in connection with the room, some trinkets and dresses removed, an old and familiar suitcase gone, had first attracted her mother's attention, then the house-searching proving that she was not there. Asa had gone outside to look up and down the street. She sometimes walked out alone or sat or stood in front of the mission during its idle or closed hours. This search revealed, revealing nothing, Clyde and he had walked to a corner, then along Missouri Avenue, no Esta. At twelve, they returned, and after that, naturally, the curiosity in regard to her grew momentarily sharper. At first, they assumed that she might have taken an unexplained walk somewhere, but as twelve-thirty, and finally one, and one-thirty passed, and no Esta. They were about to notify the police when Clyde, going into her room, saw a note pinned to the pillow of her small wooden bed, a missive that had escaped the eye of his mother. At once he went to it, curious and comprehending, for he had often wondered in what way, assuming that he had ever wished to depart surreptitiously, he would notify his parents, for he knew they would never countenance his departure unless they were permitted to supervise it in every detail. And here, for the first time in four seasons, are we seeing the more familiar use of the word countenance. By God, we've been seeing that word countenance time and time again to describe one's face. Here, finally, the more modern usage, 
uh, of an agreeance. I don't know how one became the other, but finally, I mean, I, I, I feel the weight has been lifted off of me. I mean, I almost want to give it a little trumpet. And now here was Esther missing, and here was undoubtedly some such communication as he might have left. He picked it up, eager to read it, but at that moment, his mother came into the room and seeing it in his hand, exclaimed, What's that, a note? Is it from her? He surrendered it, and she unfolded it, reading it quickly. He noted that her strong, broad face, always tanned a reddish-brown, blanched as she turned away toward the outer room. Her biggish mouth was now set in a firm, straight line. Her large, strong hand shook the least bit as it held the small note aloft. Asa, she called, and then tramping into the next room where he was, his frizzled grayish hair curling distractedly above his round head. She said, read this. Clyde, who had followed, saw him take it a little nervously in his pudgy hands, his lips always weak and beginning to crinkle at the center with age, now working curiously. Anyone who had known his life's history would have said it was the expression slightly emphasized, which with which he had received most of the untoward blows of his life in the past. This is spelled T-S-T-T-S-T-T-S-T, each with an exclamation point, was the only sound he made at first, a sucking sound of the tongue and palate. Okay, so wait. That's, that's, that's what we're going for. Not Okay. Tongue and palate. Thank you, T. Dreiser. That was... That was very helpful. Most weak and inadequate, it seemed to Clyde. Next, there was another. His head beginning to shake from side to side. And, and, and uh, subconsciously, when I did my last uh, of those sounds, my head shook a little bit from side to side. Then, now what do you suppose could have caused her to do that? Then he turned and gazed at his wife who gazed blankly in return. Then walking to and fro, his hands behind him, his short legs, taking unconscious and queerly long steps, his head moving again, he gave vent to another, ineffectual. Yes, what would have caused her to do that? Asa, you fool, do you not know? Have you and the missus never rocked on rocking chairs and said to each other, are we doing right by the children? Even parents who are doing right by their children say to themselves, are we doing right by the children? You can't help but wonder in what ways you are fucking up their lives. In you, with your itinerant lifestyle, your constant trolloping from city to city, your street preaching, your begging, your destitution, did it never occur to you that maybe your passion was not the passion of your children? Asa, did you not ever think of this? Did you not notice the slumped shoulders of your son and your daughter as they trudged along day by day? Apparently not.
Always the more impressive, Mrs. Griffiths now showed herself markedly different and more vital in this trying situation, a kind of irritation or dissatisfaction with life itself, along with an obvious physical distress seeming to pass through her like a visible shadow. Once her husband had gotten up, she reached out and took the note, then merely glared at it again, her face set to hard yet stricken and disturbing lines. Her manner was that of one who is intensely disquieted and dissatisfied, one who fingers savagely at a material knot and yet cannot undo it, one who seeks restraint and freedom from complaint and yet who would complain bitterly, angrily. For behind her were all those years of religious work and faith which somehow, in her poorly integrated conscience, seemed dimly to indicate that she should justly have been spared this. Where was her God, her Christ, at this hour, when this obvious evil was being done? Why had he not acted for her? How was he to explain this? His biblical promises, his perpetual guidance, his declared mercies, Yes, how is it possible indeed, Mrs. Griffiths, that such a fate should befall one so penitent as yourself? When one has garbed oneself in the Lord's armor, how is it that the simplest spear can penetrate? Are we anticipating a moral crisis here? A theological conversion away from God? I don't know. Because the Bible addresses this, surely. The Bible tests its subjects uh, and characters almost unceasingly. Did you think yourself better than Job? Better than Noah? Better than all of the faithful who found themselves in terrible, terrible circumstances? You thought yourself better than them? What kind of hubris is this, Mrs. Griffiths? Do you think you are the first of the first person of faith to uh, to experience hardship? Of course not. Faith is for when we experience hardship, is it not? It is then that we are supposed to move ever closer to that sustaining force. Now you see yourself in those who come to your mission and plead with you for help. Can one's faith truly be uh, sincere if if you know the first sign of trouble? You pack up your things and go home. At the moment, however, only hurt and rage were with her. And yet her lips did not twitch as did Asa's, nor did her eyes show that profound distress which filled his. Instead, she retreated a step and re-examined the letter almost angrily, then said to Asa, she's run away with someone and she doesn't say. Then she stopped suddenly. Remembering the presence of the children, Clyde, Julia, and Frank, all present and all gazing curiously, intently, unbelievingly. Come in here, she called to her husband. I want to talk to you a minute. You children had better go to bed. We'll be out in a minute. With Asa then, she retired quite precipitately, precipitately, yeah, to a small room back of the mission hall. They heard her click 
the electric bulb, then their voices were heard in low converse, while Clyde and Julia and Frank looked at each other, although Frank, being so young, only ten, could scarcely be said to have comprehended fully. Even Julia hardly gathered the full import of it, but Clyde, because of his larger contact with life and his mother's statement she's run away with someone, understood well enough. Esther had tired of all this, as had he. Perhaps there was someone, like one of those dandies whom he saw on the streets with the prettiest girls with whom she had gone. But where? And what was he like? That note told something, and yet his mother had not let him see it. She had taken it away too quickly. If only he had looked first, silently, into himself. Do you suppose she's run away for good? He asked Julia dubiously. The while his parents were out of the room, Julia herself looking so blank and strange. How should I know? She replied a little irritably, troubled by her parents' distress and this secretiveness, as well as Esther's action. She never said anything to me. I should think she'd be ashamed of herself if she has. Julia, being colder emotionally than either Esther or Clyde, was more considerate of her parents in a conventional way, and hence sorrier. True, she did not quite gather what it meant, but she suspected something, for she had talked occasionally with other girls, but in a very guarded and conservative way. Now, however, it was more the way in which Esther had chosen to leave, deserting her parents and her brothers and herself, that caused her to be angry with her, for why should she go and do anything which would distress her parents in this dreadful fashion? It was dreadful. The air was thick with misery. And we'll leave it there. So we've, you know, we've got, we, we're just, we, we've got the world being hastily assembled here. You know, the world assembled the scaffolding still erected, and before we can even admire the handiwork up to this point, we've had a dramatic turn of events. Maybe all these kids are going to end up in a bad way. I don't know. Because I, I suspect this book is going to go on for years of their lives, you know? I don't know, but I, I, I don't think this book is going to be confined to Kansas City in 1920-whatever. I think we're going to be following years and years of these kids as they grow old and uh, come to success or failure in their own ways. I don't know. I don't know if you, do you did you read, uh, what's it called, The Corrections? It's starting to remind me a little of that, which in itself was an American tragedy, was it not? Not as funny as The Corrections. The Corrections is a legitimately funny book for all of its... Um, What's the word for all of its uh, uh, bitterness? It's a very funny book. I loved it. Um, but yeah, let's leave it there. We've got we've got Hester on the run with John Hamm out there in the streets of Kansas City. No doubt drinking whiskey and putting on nylon stockings and uh, doing the jitterbug somewhere out there among those dangerous showbiz folk. Well, we'll let her have her fun on this eve. We will let her be happy for the moment. 
got another week or so before we clamp down on her in the next episode, before we go chasing after her, spoiling her night. Let's let her enjoy it and retire and find ourselves some delicious pudding to consume. As we close American American Tragedy for this week, we will open it up. Oh, uh, we will, excuse me, my goodness, I'm so excited. We'll open it up again next week on another uh, jazzy episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black. And get even more obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening. Listening.